Hello everyone, we are back with more of our special Strange Friends craft chat, where we are talking about ways that we have taken lessons from or adapted skills from the role-playing that we've done into our writing, since we are all also writers, slash primarily writers, slash more professionally writers than actual play people. The actual play field is weird. We won't get into it. So... We talked last episode about specific game mechanics and some things about characterization and making characters, but I'm curious what other topics from our list or other things that have come to mind folks are excited to talk about today. So I know I want to talk about voice, but I want to hear other folks. I want to talk about voice and and dialogue. And another thing I want to talk about is uh, setting and world building, because I think the way that you world build together uh, collectively when you're gaming is is one thing versus having to do it by yourself, but that you can kind of transition different things from one to the other. I'm very excited to hear about that because I love the collaborative world building. But when I'm world building on my own, I very quickly get to the point of like, meh, just start writing. So I'm curious what if you have like hacks for how to uh, to maybe get over that or or other approaches. So we touched on the the way that Blades in the Dark does factions last time, and I think that again, not necessarily going the the full on character sheet approach to things, but I do like a good faction story, and I think that building a world where you have factions, even if they are not necessarily super prominent or super involved it's a way to sort of deepen things because uh, it is a naturally developing human thing Um, and so it's also just kind of a good way to create conflict you establish like what are the factions what are their turfs who is within each faction who are the important people and which factions are allied and which ones are opposed and creating that gives you natural conflict points that can then segue into plot. And I think that they can also impact character in really interesting ways because then for your character, it's like, which of the factions does your character align with? Which of the factions does your character oppose? Do they know anyone within the factions? And that was another thing that Blades of the Dark did well. It's like, here are your allies and here are your enemies. Pick you know, pick them from this, this sheet of possibilities. And sort of creating those connections within a world deepens it in really good ways. Yeah, some GMing advice that I think Apocalypse World gives, and probably other games, but it's the one that I'm thinking of specifically, encourages you to make triangles where there's a PC over here and a PC over here, and then there's an NPC. And the idea is that those two characters have a different relationship with that NPC from one another. And so like, oh, okay, this character is the like the smuggler supplier for protagonist A, but is, you know, a ex-lover of protagonist B. And I think this is definitely applicable in terms of writing, where if you've got your like POV characters or your like protagonist types, if you have a, a fairly tight like scope, you want to think about the different relationships that different people have to those folks that are kind of in the, the texture or the supporting cast. I was thinking of something similar as well. So we recently played um, Fight with Spirit, and in the character creation process of that, you're supposed to pick traits that are almost always tied to another character. But the thing that I love about the traits in Fight with Spirit is that all of those traits are often double-edged. They're about how, like, your relationship to a thing has soured and how it's changed your relationship to the person you shared that thing with. Or you have a family member, but it's defined by an obligation to your family that you have a negative relationship with. And all of those, like, all of the facts that you can still have otherwise very positive, very healthy relationships with these people, or relationships that were positive or still have the potential to be positive, but they are in, they're framed initially through the lens of this is the thing that makes it so difficult for us to interact or makes our interaction so fraught, is so meaty because it means that you have already defined two things about this relationship, that there is a way that it can become better or wholesome or uh, potentially good. 
but it has been complicated and you need to resolve the complication first because that is the source of conflict. And I think that that's a very good way to develop some of those relationships in our story as well, to be willing to ask the question of, well, what if we're going to introduce this other person, if we want to qualify a, a secondary uh, character for this protagonist, even if we know good, productive, wholesome things about this relationship, what is the sticking point in this relationship and uh, how does it potentially uh, engage with plot again or how does engagement with plot give you the opportunity to rectify that relationship? I love also how it, it sets up initial, um, it, like team relationships with the other teams because then it is again sort of a faction game which is really useful it gives you very specific dynamics for each team but also for the teams in relation to each other and i think that's extremely useful to set up because once again it's like not just interpersonally which is super super important and great it is also just that kind of like the group think aspect of it as well is you know within your group uh are are you part of that are you do you feel the way that your larger group does about the the two teams or are you different you have you know for example an old friend on one of the other teams and that changes your relationship to that particular dynamic so that game is really cool in the way that it sets up all, all of those different like friendship points conflict points just places and opportunities to to change like you said brennan yeah, like the the thing that kind of builds on that for me is specifically bonds or history, the character to PC to PC relationship prompts that you ask and answer at the beginning of the campaign or in session zero, where in something like Apocalypse World, you have those questions that are, it's, it's HX like RX for prescription, HX. Some people say hex, some people say history. But all of those are like charged. And bonds in Court of Blades, some of them are charged, some of them are more more antagonistic, some are less. And I took those and did a similar system in the Genrenauts role-playing game because I found across years and years of playing Forge in the Dark games, I really like, especially in a team or crew-oriented game, knowing that I have a starting emotional beat to play off of. And I feel like figuring that out with our promises to one another in Girl by Moonlight was also really important. I think that this has actually been one of the most fun parts of our character creations for me because, like, I really... I don't usually vibe with... We all were in the same tavern and have met by coincidence. So having those pre-established relationships to fall back on has also been really useful for me in building out the characters. Because when I show up to the table with, you know, two traits and some dick jokes and three pre-established bonds, I get to figure out who is the complex person who has, you know, stubborn scared of of trees, some dick jokes, and also, like, this history of having betrayed this other party member. How am I reconciling this into a fully rounded person? So one of the other examples of this in Powered by the Apocalypse and Fortune Dark Games that I also really like is when a move or an ability also references another character. Again, Girl by Moonlight having some very choice examples of this. A lot of Ruth is so, like, so absolutely evocative. But, like, I love the fact that there are moves referencing that playbook's rival that not only are there for opportunities to make an action in, in game that will benefit you in a particular situation, but that means that you have to define a rival, and that could be someone that you still have a completely separate bond with. So now there are two pieces of information you know about your relationship to this person. And one of them could be very good and one of them could be very bad because rivalry is not framed ideally in this sense, in a way that is actually really evocative in a story sense because it means that there are opportunities for you to define your protagonist as being significantly agented in a particular circumstance as it relates to this other person. 
and then asking this question on a scene by scene basis, what does it mean that this person is not there? What does it mean that this person is here and is doing better than you or is seriously injured or has one up to you in this particular conflict and like left the scene before you could respond? And as a GM, I'm always really inspired by that as well, because it means I, I am not thinking about what you are doing for your own sake. I'm thinking about what you're doing in this relationship, in relationship to this other person. But in a storytelling sense, it means that you always not only have a kind of momentum, but are always learning things about the relationship between these characters in ways that are inspiring. Yeah, because these relationships don't have to be symmetrical, right? Ruth was Vic's rival. Vic was not Ruth's rival. Or one of those is true, but not the other. Whichever way you want to frame it, right? Vic's- Ruth, Ruth considered you Ruth's rival. And you were like, okay, cool. I'm here protecting everybody. I didn't know we were beefing. Yeah, and that the degree to which a relationship is or isn't symmetrical is maybe something that you can build on, right? Like, oh, okay, can you can you have a, a healthy friendship that isn't symmetrical? Okay, in what ways isn't, is it not symmetrical? Do, okay, person A fulfills certain emotional needs or other needs for person B, and then person B you know, has a certain role for person A, and that those can go together without being symmetrical, either because of, you know, different types of investment or the different things that people are necessarily going to one another over, or a relationship has changed over time. And like the way that that change has happened means that like some weight or charge is different. I'm thinking of like, um, like isotopes now for whatever reason, despite not having a strong science background, this little bit of like high school science is coming into me. People that know each other for a long time, right? People grow closer or go farther apart, but it's not necessarily a one-way process. And that you can reinterpret your relationship with people over the course of a campaign or over the course of a, a book how does a relationship between a protagonist and a notable character change? And are you thinking about how that relationship has changed from both perspectives? I think it's interesting, sort of sliding it back towards setting concepts, the idea of who each character is in a different location, because that absolutely can change. And that was something I felt like Girl by Moonlight did very well as well in having its kind of like manifestations of obligation showed each of us in our waking life because we were playing, you know, in a maze of dreams. And so each of us in our waking life, who are we, what are we doing? And these are ourselves distinct from our interactions with our allies, our friends. These are ourselves in hostile territory territory situations, essentially. And the ways that those settings, those locations were built by Brandon was also amazing in terms of heightening tension, in terms of illustrating character. Like, these were all very kind of dark mirror reflections of uh, our contemporary nightmares in ways that yielded a lot of really cool and interesting character work. And so, in that sense, RPing in specific locations like that brought out character. And that's something that taking that to writing is also very useful. And having your settings be very kind of like clearly established and evocative in a way that says something about the people and how they act differently, how they code switch, you know, between different locations and when they're talking to different people is really important. Yeah. Like what place gives people what vibes? Right? Like, if you have to go to work at a place where you always feel like the vibes are off, how do you display that in what this character does and doesn't do, how they think about it? So, first, I want to say again, uh, Fractal Spire was a lot, and I'm so very sorry that those obligation scenes were doing so much. But every once in a while, I actually think back about that distinction between obligation, between the waking world, and your engagement with dreams in a kind of uh like pulp novel film noir sense in the in the sense that there is a world in which the hero of a certain kind of story is always at their best or most powerful but the story always opens even most adventures most um pulp stories most sci-fi novels start at the point where they are not that person like Luke Skywalker doesn't become a Jedi until we've seen him 
suffer the loss of his only uh, guardians in the world. Every film noir that you've every every classic film noir that you've ever seen starts with a very dawa detective telling you that he's broke. And then the action happens and you discover that they're in their element in another world. And I think, even though Girl by Moonlight is obviously doing that for a very uh, strongly thematic reason, especially in A Maze of Dreams, to reinforce the idea that the conspiracy is this obviously capitalist hellscape that brings out the worst in all people, and it is the thing that you are trying to avoid but are least equipped to uh, to, ex- to actually extricate yourself from. But I think in an overall story sense, is just a really good setting frame. Where is your character a fish out of water? And why is it that there is a kind of conflict that they feel themselves more comfortable in? And what does it say that they feel more comfortable in that kind of conflict? And what do you learn about the character and that world by digging into the fact that they're willing to throw themselves in harm's way for this thing that is more comfortable than an otherwise normal, otherwise, like, not immediately life-threatening kind of terror in their lives. I think that game is also just, again, very good at establishing aesthetic in terms of its setting. Every setting had its own very specific mechanical stuff, and I think that in writing, that's also really useful to do. It's not that you every writing thing that you do has to be rules-based. It's not that you have to be extremely, you know, Brandon Sanderson about developing an entire structure and system, and it works in a very specific way, and it always only works that way. But it is useful to, at the very least, have that aesthetic framework and have those vibes and know that you want to lean into those vibes. Because I think then as you're drafting and as you're making choices, you know, on the fly, you have a structure to lean on. You have a set of just kind of, it's it's like knowing what ingredients are in your cabinet so you know what you can bake. And I think that games like that do a really good job of filling, you know, the ingredients and stocking the ingredients that that are going to work in a particular way. And once you do have that sort of framework, even if it is very loose, even if it is just like two, you know, adverbs and or two adjectives and and uh, and a, a joke, like it lets you lean on that and lets you build on it as a foundation. And and every time that you're not sure what to come up with next, you can just reach back into that and and find something. Yeah, that reminds me of so in a, in a few different role-playing games that I've read or, or played, there's the idea of establishing the palette of like, oh, okay, what is the palette that we're utilizing in this campaign? And people will suggest like touchstones. We did a little bit of this with um, Fractal Spire, more directly engaging with the touchstones that, that Andrew, the designer, referenced directly. But you can set yourself a palette for a project that you want to start right? If you, if you're like, I want to write a space opera, like when I, when I was developing Annihilation Aria, I made myself a, like a trope and scene menu of what are things I love about space opera? Oh, I'd love to do a this. I'd love to do a that. In collaboration, it's much easier because you're bouncing off of one another, but an option for yourself, maybe to be able to get more of that aesthetic vibe or to draw in more concrete things from existing reference material. You maybe think about ways to make yourself a menu or make yourself a palette that can either be something you refer back to, like a Pinterest board, or is just the raw material, the kindling that you use to get your ideas going. And again, that that can be very generative. Like, look what Yori did inventing, you know, an entire game that... (laughs) It's Severosi Dominoes, like for real, and the deck of reveries. No, I that mean, was Brandon. That oh, that was, was Brandon. Very okay, much Brandon. <laughs> Sorry. I invented hospitality culture. There you go. But see that, and that's the thing, though, is that reaching for that stuff, like coming up with that stuff, even if you came up with it on the fly, it automatically fleshes out the setting in ways that are meaningful, not just to the other characters in terms of how they interact with the things, but to the care to to you know like the individual characters and how they interface with whatever that thing is and what is what it means to them what what meaning it holds there is a tendency i think when we talk about uh like wrecks for certain stories that it's 
purely reader facing or purely industry facing that its job is just to tell someone either how to market the thing or to tell a prospective reader it is like this thing that you enjoy but my experience when it comes to like how uh, designers will reference the influences of their ttrpgs is that it is much more a space to have a conversation about vibe and to like frame your recommendations not only in terms of this is the overall genre the overall tropes that i'm trying to touch but i'm trying to touch these overall tropes through a particular lens because this other potential touchstone is just like these things but obviously looking or sounding a certain way or is not among these uh, touchstones and therefore is a good sign of focusing on the specific things that are meaningful in this moment uh, I think a lot about the short story that I wrote for the Sunday Morning Transport, uh, The Officer in Your Heart, where it is a mecha story, and I'm very, like, committed to a lot of Evangelion touchstones in that space, but the internal in- in- influences that I had when I was writing it were, what if... Evangelion minus all of these other mecha things that are far more like heavily comparable in this space because people just like giant robots and giant robots are cool but what if those aren't the things that are important um, and I think a lot about like how we frame the palette in particular like I think more people would feel um, more empowered in their creative process by being able to say my mood board also very obviously lets you know what this thing is not or what this thing hates um, in a way that makes my intent clear. Right. Spite is a great motivator for writing sometimes. Because sometimes, sometimes you write that thing because you want some, you want some people to know you're never going to do this thing. Right, because hypothetically i might sometimes read something or watch something and then i pitch myself x if it was good and by good i mean if it resonated and satisfied me as a writer slash as an audience member and so you know you can write in reaction to something um where it's like oh instead like instead of writing fix it fic i'm going to file the serial numbers off and put a thing out into the world that is still in response to that other thing, but different. Yeah. Sometimes you're not writing fix it fic, you're writing kill it fic. (laughs) Yeah. Like I have no problem saying the officer in your heart is Evangelion if it were queer and end this game if it were queer. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Cause like, well, I'm doing a magic school story. Well, I'm doing a magic school story bouncing off of Diana Wynne Jones is very different than I'm doing a magic school story and I'm bouncing off of the fifth season. Which Both. week is so not Harry Potter. Yeah. And I think especially when you're dealing with a trope that has like a major touchstone right now, either because it's something that's like viewed as a classic or whatever, thinking about inter- alternative interpretations or just this part of xyz so like oh well this is like terminator but not terminator 2 just the first one where xyz right or you you zoom in i find for myself you know there's a and this is getting a little bit more broad than just role playing but the specificity there maybe can be really useful because to a certain degree many stories are like oh this is just like x the more specific you are, the more specific your emotional investment, the more specific the character's relationship to something, maybe then you will have an easier time finding room for your work to feel distinct. So one of the interesting other examples of this, and uh, coming back to like comparing TTRPG inspirations to the way that we uh, palette our stories, is there is a Kickstarter with, as we, are, as we presently speak, only 13 hours left in this campaign, uh, called Terminal, a digital pirate action RPG that cites inspirations like the Matrix movies, Black Sails, and Paprika. And I get the... Com- the the combinatorial vibe of those things that we're going to be literally on the open seas that we are literally fighting giant robots that are like piloting over this 
uh, unique other world in order to placate us from realizing what the real world looks like. And then one of its inspirations is a musical that I've a musical film that I've never seen before called Please Baby Please. And then I look it up on Wikipedia and it's the weirdest thing that I've ever seen in my life. Um, I still have yet to see it and I want to see it, but I'm like, I have no idea how this touches with everything else. And I, and that's when I realize that's the goal, that its intention is to say, this is vibe. Everything else is trope or genre, but this is pure aesthetic. And now I'm like utterly fascinated with the idea of fulfilling um, inspirations that are purely aesthetic, that we don't care about anything else. Like, what if when you say that your story is Revolutionary Girl Utena, you don't mean anything other than... I want this to I want people to see it and go I know where that reference comes from and like that vibe is fulfilled in a way that is always like on even when it's not fully engaging with the story. All right. So I think the the other big thing that we talked about in our like brief discussion on break is the idea of voice and applying like things we've done in terms of like developing character voice to writing. But I think, Valerie, you also had some thoughts on this. I know that I do, but I'd, I'd love to go second. Yeah, no, I and I, I think Yuri had some too, actually, um, previously. But a, a lot of what I think about um, specifically when it comes to voice, because when we're RPing, we're, we're playing as a particular character, is how that character talks. It's the kind of dialogue that that character is going to come up with. And so you can range from characters that speak very little. Like, I feel like Skelly was a very quiet character, very stoic when she had something to say, it was typically just an observation on something that was going on or a concern being voiced. And so, like, knowing that your character is like that, that they are, you know, quiet, loud, that they are, you know, prone to speaking when they're nervous or prone to withdrawing when they're anxious or what have you. Um, and just the ways that the different characters talk. Different people either do or don't hear the things that they're writing as they're writing it and do or don't hear the things that they're reading as they're reading it. People experience reading in different ways. You know, it can be something that they, they actually like hear it as if there's a voice in their head or they have a movie playing as they're reading the thing. But um, everyone does that differently. And I think that for me, possibly because of so much RPing, I can really hear my characters talking. It is like they are being acted as I am writing them. It is as if I am RPing them, but in my brain by myself. And so, uh, to me, that has been one of the benefits of RPing, is that very strong sense of, this is how a character talks, and I can hear their voice in my head, and you know, I'm, I'm simply try- trying to transcribe the way that I hear them, and if I feel like I've written it wrong, then I know it's like I can go back and go, oh, they wouldn't say it like that, actually. They'd use this different word or they'd phrase this a different way or maybe they wouldn't say anything at all, actually. Yeah, something that I've I've realized, and I think this is probably from doing so much RP, that when I'm writing characters in fiction, I need to put more of the interiority there because the interiority and the logic and the emotional responses happening in my head, I'm thinking through the character's process. And it's a lesson that I've had to learn both for both disciplines to one, articulate that emotional process as part of actual play, either by performing it or by flagging it out of character, like jumping up to the player level and saying like, Hey, this is what my character is thinking about this time at, at this moment either to inform something or to like jump up to that out of character level to like have a meta discussion. But then in prose, I am going to want to write down that emotional journey, write down those emotional responses to contextualize those things. Because I think there've been times when the movie playing in my head is great and that I'm not doing a good enough job of putting it on the page. Does anyone like read their stuff out loud? Because I do not. I can't. I hate hearing my I own do. voice. You do? Oh. Like, it's the only way I can get a decent sense of whether or not the rhythm works. But it's also kind of useless because if a story gets like podcasted or audiobooked, 
I'm not going to be the one who's reading it, so the rhythm is naturally going to be different when someone else performs it anyway. Yeah, it's tricky. I also... I also read my stuff aloud, but that's because that's the uh, performance poet part of my brain. And also because when you write dialogue in Creole and speak with an accent, you kind of need to know not only that it will constantly sound the way that it's supposed to sound when it's being read, but that it can do that without people being confused. But also, I feel like the powered by the apocalypse forged in the dark look language can also be applied to voice um not not only in terms of what they literally sound like um what their voice timbre or cadence might be but also like what idioms do they use um uh, what are the topics of conversation that are most likely to annoy them, etc. Uh, that is also very useful, um, which is hard to remember a lot of the time, especially uh, like being a being a writer is like being a GM in the sense that when you realize that you're juggling dozens of secondary characters who are not your protagonists and who you're not going to meet very often, you suddenly forget what they're supposed to sound like. But if you have a very good, very short kind of sense of what their sounds vibe is, that becomes easier. Yeah, this has been a big thing for me, GMing, because for any of the games that aren't being recorded, I can't go back and remember, just listen to the voice that I did for that character. Um, so like the Monday night game that I, that I run, people take notes, but it's not recorded which means that I have to take some kind of notes. And so I'm having to develop the skill of using text to describe the voice that I just improvise so that I can recreate it. I need to give myself at least enough clues to be able to go back to that place. And that I think is applying over into writing because I'm more cognizant of here are ways to talk about someone's affect or the texture or the quality of their voice. And in prose, I think that there is also, not all the time, you know, depends on the mode that you're in. There is room to get a bit more poetic, but then that poet poetry can come back into actual play. Because if I introduce an NPC, I can say, oh, this person has like a really melodic voice like someone has a chanson song on the radio, a room over at a party. And that gives you a vibe for what somebody's voice is. And then I don't have to create that voice, nor do I have to create it in the fit in uh, prose, as long as the work I do in the prose doesn't invalidate that previous, like more summary evocative description. Since all of you have GM'd, I don't really GM. I'm again. I just I play and I narrate. I do my own writing stuff. But do you feel we will like fix that at some point? By the way, really cringe. But do you feel like your GM voice and your fiction narrator voices are really different? Do you feel like they have impacted each other in any way? Just curious. Just make me have an existential crisis on on the recording, Valerie. Jeez. No, that was not my intent at all. For, okay, flashback. We do not have Valerie's <laughs> pulling us all out today. Wow. I think my GMing voice is much more conversational than my prose narrator voice. And I think that probably comes from some internalized sense of like propriety and right and proper good writing that I haven't been able to unprogram. I think my narrative voice differs dramatically between pieces. Like, the narration tone for Hybrid Heart is extremely different from Can I Offer You a Nice Egg in This Trying Time? But I think my GMing voice comes a lot closer to Can I Offer You a Nice Egg in This Trying Time? Because that is more of my natural register when I'm engaged with other people. Like... Hybrid Heart sounded like my internal monologue when I am just talking myself through the day. And can I write, can I offer you a nice egg in this trying time was very much like me engaging with telling someone else a story. 
about a really comically pathetic guy. Oh god. This is a reminder to everyone you should read uh, Iori Kusano's egg story is kick-ass. It's an uncanny. Mm-hmm. Now that you asked me this absolutely mind-breaking question, I think the only way that I have to describe it is my writer's narrative voice is constantly trying to tell a very deep, meaningful version of what are obviously very stupid stories. And my GM voice is obviously trying is always trying to tell obviously silly narrations of obviously very stu- serious stories. Uh, my GM register is always going towards I am narrating the Lego Movie, but everybody is actually uh, actually doing very important and serious things all the time. But my writer's narrative voice likes making lots of very quote-unquote, deep literary decisions, only to be cut off by the fact that this is silly. I like I like both of those juxtapositions because on paper it's very easy to watch something be pretentious and then fall apart. But GMing, because, and mostly because of the tone of the things that we play, I like opening with the silliness or the weirdness first, and then giving you opportunities to be meaningful character to make meaningful characters that I then just continue putting in rooms full of rubber duckies and see what happens next. So yeah, I think there are things that there are things that I would like to do uh, on paper that I do in GMing do while GMing all the time that I haven't found either the right story. Or the right outlet that will take the story that sounds that way. But now you have put me to the ch- now you've put me to a challenge in my brain. I'm not sure if I can live up to that there, but I will try. So on further consideration, I think my GMing voice is the most similar to two different projects: the Rereyes series, which was my debut series, and Annihilation Aria. Because when I'm GMing. I often find it hard to not reach for the pop culture references. Like in GMing Valorward, a Renaissance fantasy action, magic, and intrigue thing, I referenced the Terminator series because it was the thing that was on hand that conveyed the vibe of like a an unstoppable, unmove like a like an unstoppable agent in a particular situation and. If I were being, if I were being really strict in my discipline in terms of palette that I was reaching for, I wouldn't go there. But I didn't use that strictness. I actually reached for that thing. That shows up probably the most or the closest again in Annihilation Aria. I think because that work was very consciously me trying to reconnect with like a more core version of who I was as a storyteller, as opposed to what I thought the storytelling needed to be like for a particular genre or subgenre. And so that ends up making me feel pretty good, but I will continue to have an existential crisis about this in what I hope will be productive ways. I would like to apologize to everyone for causing yeah, you kind of, a, you kind a of total break. Valerie. In a very good way. What you kind of ruined us. Now I'm also like, what is the GM version of Can You Sign My Tentacles narrative voice? How do I do that? Yeah, because much like you can set yourself like a tone and scope for a fiction project, I think the game itself helps set expectations in a lot of ways, right? If you're trying to meet the text, the text gives you a sense of this is the this is the tool set I am. I am setting you up to do this type of thing. Like Slug Blaster, setting us up to have a certain type of fun. Here are some touchstones, here's vibes, here's the design aesthetic, versus, you know, Court of Blades is pointing in a very different direction. And so maybe it's a question of being conscious and making conscious choices about how much to draw on or complement slash contrast some of those things that we're bringing to the table slash the the typewriter 
I'll put myself on the spot a little bit and sort of answer from a player perspective, because the thing that I'm thinking about as y'all are talking about this is that because you're GMs, I think there is a tendency, and this is just my observation, for you all to fall into third-person narratives as a rule because of the fact that you are floating between different characters. And so it, I think, makes for a natural, like, you know, character name does X, character name says this, character name does whatever. Whereas I, as a player, I feel like I switch back and forth. Skelly does this, or I do this, or, you know, like, and I think that has to do with the fact that in each game as the player, you're only playing as one character. And as a writer, I gravitate towards third person as a rule. First person is not where I tend to live. And yet as a player, I feel like I do tend to do more I statements when I'm talking about my own characters. You know, I roll this, I roll that, I my character, you know, I do this, I do that. As opposed to my character does this, my character does that. And I think I do switch back and forth because I do think my natural narrative mode is third person, but also because of that sort of single player situation, I think it makes it feel more natural to do that. I think that I have defined my boundaries around that very differently. I tend to write in super close third person, so I do not often go into the interiority of non-protagonist characters. Like, if I present interiority of non-protagonist characters, it is still through the lens of the protagonist is speculating about them, but can never truly know unless the other person decides to tell them. But when I'm playing, I ascribe roles as an action Iori is taking. So a lot of what I'll play do when I'm playing is, I rolled a four. Cat does this. Which I think is an extension of that close third. Yeah, whereas I think the I noticed in actual play, when playing, I was using a lot of third person. And I think some of that probably comes from GMing. Some of it probably comes from the fact that I I also trend toward third, though I often do really close third. And the close third of actual play, I feel like is more permeable because of the the player level. Um, and so that that's an interesting juxtaposition to try to, and like question to unpack. I also think if I was trying to define my character play through the lens of like doing it in first person, I'm writing it in first person the way that a series of unfortunate events is written in first person and just clocks you upside the head with that by surprise sometimes. Like, yes, I'm Lemony Snicket. I am telling you a story about a very unfortunate child. Yeah, so that it sounds like third person a lot of the time until it doesn't. <laughs> exactly. And then, oops, surprise, I've injected an opinion. Yeah, that sort of like, what is inf- invasive narrator voice? I don't know if, what I would call it, but yeah, it's very fun. And then, of course, second person shows up as something that the GM does. You do this. You're walking into here, but that is a specific individual or plural second person not doing some of the things that people have been using second person to do, especially in more experimental work. Um, and so that's that's interesting. I feel like we have uh, Valerie. You have opened a whole like line of inquiry. This is very. This is very cool. Everyone is now uh, making notes to take to their therapist, and I'm so sorry that I've done this to all of you. Joke's on you. My health insurance doesn't cover therapy. <laughs> Mood! Oh, God. Oh, oh. Meanwhile, I'm here like, y'all have health insurance? <laughs> therapy oh, in this economy? <laughs> That's why we have role-playing games. Ba-dum-tsh. Exactly. Aspirational. Oh, God. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Don't use role-playing games as your only therapy if you can get other therapy from people who are worth talking to. Please. Your GM is not your therapist. <laughs> do not do this to your GM, please. Not it. I would like to ask a very mostly silly question uh, as we're uh, nearing the end. Obviously, all of everyone here has at least the one novel except for me. But I'd like to ask... in. in 
uh, thinking very deeply about the characters that you've already written, if there was at least one move or special ability in the vein of the RPGs that we've already played that you know your protagonist definitely has, what would that uh, move be? And you can think of this in the Blade sense, in the D&D sense. It doesn't matter. I'm just very curious. What you what you thought your characters can definitely do in that sense. Answering for geekomancy is cheating, so I'm not going to. Because those characters <laughs> like more directly reference extant material. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That was also me filling time so that people can think. Max from Annihilation Aria would probably have a move that would let the player just state certain things to be true about an archaeological site that they're engaging with. So it'd be like, when you walk through the what remains of an archaeological site, uh, you can spend one's, uh, one stress per the following things to make them be true. You know, like, you understand the underlying story a a secret element of history is revealed you re, you know you find a new understanding of something you uh you thought was true earlier like that the kind of thing where there's like a, a bit of a list but it requires engaging in that way because the character is this archaeologist i think if i spoke in the terms of the last short story that i wrote uh the office in your heart it would be similar to the werewolf move in Monster Hearts, uh, the werewolf sex move in particular. That is, uh, you always know like where this person uh, is and whether they're in danger because the protagonist of that story opens the story by going, I am having a, a, a moment in my body and this moment in my body is telling me that the person I care about very deeply is about to suffer negative consequences. I am going to commit mutiny in order to stop that from happening. And it just so happened to be correct, even though we never actually hear from that character or actually see them in the story until very, very late. But because I just wanted to fill that con- fulfill that kind of fantasy of caring about someone very deeply means that you know exactly what they need in that moment and can give it to them. I think for Lay from Heart- Hybrid Heart, it has to be perfect pitch from the Harmony playbook in Girl by Moonlight because that gives a plus one D when she sings to inspire her allies or soothe the troubled hearts of foes. Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm just utterly failing at this. And what's hilarious to me is that I, I often think of things. I, there's Well, there's one thing that I can't say because it's too much of a spoiler, I think. But I will say that, interestingly, I feel like a lot of the character interactions and dynamics that end up happening in Where Peace is Lost have a lot in common with the kinds of conversations that occur in Girl by Moonlight in terms of, like, you have a, a, you know, a moment with this character. Do they, like engage with it or do they set a boundary and I feel like that is a a really useful sort of tool that comes up and so the different characters I think would you know have for example confess or forgive and those are things that definitely do come up in that book which I hadn't even thought about until literally this moment it's wild to consider the ways in which that affected how I had character interactions go down in that I I think Ava has some version of the I know a guy move Ow. where it's like when you first come to a new place tell us about somebody that you know here and then tell us if you owe them or they owe you. I listen I'm going to call you out Mike and you can cut this later if you need me to but I think Ava has Amir Huckleberry. <laughs> like <laughs> Ava at any moment can just target yes. in on someone and like that's it. We are locked in combat and you cannot, that other character cannot escape the combat until it's complete one way or the other. And so. So that, that means that that move in Genrenauts comes from the, the title comes from the movie and then the vibes come from the, uh, the book, which then is then very funny because you are the one who played the character who had that move. <laughs> and that character was nothing like Ava, actually. <laughs> That's very fun. Brandon, good question. If Thank you, you personally had a move or ability, what would it be? Who, me as a human? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh god. Oh god, I've been put on the spot. <laughs> there is something in Girl by Moonlight, I'm sure. And I highly suspect it's probably from one of the more emotionally hostile uh, playbooks. But I do... There is, I, I guess what I will say from a GM standpoint, if, if you will allow me the opportunity to, to divert into the thing that I know so deeply. Weirdly enough, I'm, uh, I would call the way that I GM very assist heavy. I'm very fond, I mean, obviously this is the way that GMing is supposed to work. I'm supposed to be a fan of the players, but I'm very, I'm particularly very fond of when something is, when someone is particularly struggling with a moment of, I don't know what should happen. Um, I have been put on this spot and I'm not sure how to figure this out. I like just kind of throwing out ideas about how we should possibly respond in the hopes that that will trigger you to make another decision that is in the vein of the thing that I made. So I like thinking of that as a free assist. Uh, in that sense, that I have given you a, a way out of being put on the spot in this moment to establish this thing. Because ideas are free. I can give you lots of ideas. They're all bad, but hopefully you'll have a better one now that I give it to you. When my brain is working well, I have the stat substitution type move from Power by the Apocalypse games, where it reads, um, you, can, you, you can roll with creativity instead of discipline when you are making a plan or when you are executing a plan. The idea of like, like being able to ideate at something hard enough to, to like break through or deliver. I say again, when my brain is working well. My actual build is like, basically, I have the abilities off the whisper playbook that's just how religion works in my life so if i was going to pick a special ability it has to be the devil's footsteps i want to be athletic <laughs> valerie yeah. what's yours I, I i got nothing i feel like <laughs> anytime this sort of thing comes up i'm just like i'm just an npc as y'all i am i'm a level zero commoner i got, I got nothing <laughs> i don't know i don't know I struggle with this sort of thing. Does this self description stuff? It's like I feel like I'm a dilettante. Is there is that a, a skill from any playbook there, there where it's is. like yeah. yeah, I was gonna say I feel like there is right where it's like you know a little bit about a lot of things, but not a lot about any one thing. Yeah. And so, so <laughs> in five e, there's a bard class feature oh, that is go. jack of all trades that yeah. means you get a small bonus on everything, anything. even if you're not trained in it. <laughs> yeah, my mind is just a bond of weird random things that surface at not the time that i need them unfortunately so hmm, that's it that's like my superpower so take that one move out of the slide playbook that lets you roll your best action rating for anything else as long as you can justify how the skill applies yep yeah. that seems I'm like just, a very valerie thing i was like i'm just gonna use this completely unrelated thing to do this thing i mean there there is uh <laughs> an element of tinker in that too right where it's just like i'm gonna rig up something that i for this thing that i need to have a thing for and that i don't have a thing for we're gonna make it work because all i got is duct tape and hope mm -hmm. i think that's actually it that you ha your move is that you can use tinker to cast to to create uh, a reasonable theory or critique about how to uh resolve a particular problem and it will always be at least of good quality if not fine how about hyper focus is that <laughs> i've gone down a rabbit hole and i will never come back i will see my family eventually yeah. <laughs> all right i love oh god if neurodivergence was a move all of us are like have very full playbooks a very very high experience the only thing i have dots in yeah well, like because there there is a like positive psychology argument to like framing like neurodiversity as a positive instead of framing it in terms of like a lack or a deficiency right because to a certain extent something is a disability because society does not support it and that you know, things can become 
maybe not a capital D disability if society actually makes space for them. So like in a hypothetical future where we have a variety of neurotypes that are all supported and validated, you know, then, you know, we're in a different place than we are now. Aspirational. Yes. But I like Make the- your I like the idea of, of returning to and ending on, uh, you know, I can do, you know, we can do basically anything with, with hope and, you know, whatever it is that you said. Uh, I'm imagining like, you know, hope, uh, up like a paperclip and, you know, a wad of gum. That is yeah. that. Uh, we should probably wrap up because it is getting late where we are. And uh, I'm very sleepy because I have not slept well this week. And I'm grateful to you all for, uh, for hanging out so that we could talk about writing and gaming. I had a lot of fun here, so I would love to see if we can make time and space to do this again, ideally with Yoi next time, if uh, the fates permit. If you are a person who likes sending vibes into the universe, please send good vibes to Yoi so that the people can be in good health. There is scary weather stuff happening, so I'm sending my good thoughts to everyone there to come through the uh, kind of U.S. Pacific Coast weather that is happening right now in good health. Uh, Thanks to everybody for hanging out with us, watching live or on the VOD or listening on the podcast. Shout out to Rudy Basso, our editor. We love you, Rudy. Thank you. And now I'm going to invite everybody to remind us where they can find you uh, on the internet or other places if you wish to be found, starting with Valerie. Well, considering recent events and certain social media sites, you can find me on Blue Sky, Valerie Valdez. And I'm also on Instagram as Valerie Valdez Author. I'm going to still be on Twitter as Valerie Valdez because I'm parking my name so nobody steals it and tries to be me, which would be weird. Uh, you can also find me on Twitch at The Kids Are Asleep and online at ValerieValdez.com. Yori Kusano, they, them. I can still be found on Twitter at Yori Kusano. When Twitter ends, I am not making new social media. You can find me up in the mountains like a Taoist immortal. I am also not parking. I am not parking my name on other services. If you see an Iori on those other services, A, they're an imposter. B, Good luck stealing my identity. Pay my student loans for me, right? <laughs> That's not the worst trade. Oh, God. As for me, uh, I am Brandon O'Brien. My pronouns are he, him, or they, them. You can find me on all social media, including the hell site, at The Rising Tides. That's T-I-T-H-E-S. But you probably shouldn't do that anyway and should just go to my website which is also my newsletter brandonobrien.xyz so you can hear me talk about writing talk about rpgs and sometimes take screenshots of whatever mobile game i'm playing so you know that i'm actually not writing at the moment that should stop me you can also find me playing or gming other things very soon you will see me gming a game uh, a, a mini series over at uh, open circuit studios Leverage Port of Spain. Uh, so if you liked the fun that you saw when I was GMing a family of blades with all of these lovely people, you get to see me uh, run the uh, Cortex-powered Leverage RPG with a whole group, a whole new group of lovely people who, all, who will also be very rad, and that's, go- that's going to be a lot of fun as well. And you can find me at Meatspace very soon at Big Bad Con in late September. Uh, so yeah, that's me. And I am Mike Underwood. I write as Michael R. Underwood. You can find the audiobook version of Annihilation Aria, my latest space opera novel, uh, wherever you get your audiobooks. I stream sometimes on Twitch at twitch.tv slash TurboTango, and you can see me next week on August the 25th, GMing, aka being the dancing master for Valorward, our game of Court of Blades, of which uh, Brandon is a player as we continue the Hibiscus Tournament, a grand uh, tournament of arms between the Bravos of the various houses. A show so awesome, it is an official selection at three different web festivals, uh, which is very fun. And soon we will actually go to those web festivals and meet other actual play creators in person. Sounds fake. 
I look forward to it. Everybody? I always thought that podcast meant that we were only existing as uh, extant voices in the void of the internet, but that's not true. Right, but we're in the actual play video category, so we're, we're um, perceived as, yes, as, as we, beings. Yes, we actually have busts and not entire bodies, but still. So if you're attending the New Jersey Web Fest, you can theoretically see me and not just from like the shoulders up um, say hi. I look forward to seeing folks there. Thanks again to everybody for watching, and we will see you another time with more excitement, adventure, and or ridiculousness with the strange friends here on Speculate. Until then, take care. Bye. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band, The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com. Hi everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.